Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. Julie, we find ourselves in uh, January. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the Christmas has once again died down. We, we don't have to worry about that for another year. And we also don't have to worry about the, the war on Christmas for another year, right? That's right. And what do you do in the absence of the war on Christmas in these January doldrums? Yeah, well, this is actually the perfect time to concentrate on another ongoing war. And that's the war on creativity. Bum, bum, bum. And it's really, it's a good time to talk about it because January is always, it's a time of new beginnings. It's a time of, you know, of, of new corporate goals and new personal goals. And a lot of times that incorporates a certain amount of creative uh, thinking. I want to think more creatively. I want to be more creatively. I want my company to, to figure out uh, new and inventive ways to go about our process. That's right. In fact, one of the things we can pick from in our development goals uh, will fall under a theme of, I think it was like customer service, innovation, all sorts of different categories. But innovation, that's one of them, creativity, essentially. And this is a huge cottage industry in the marketplace, right, in corporations. Everybody wants an out-of-the-box thinker, someone who can really come up with juicy new novel ideas. Yeah, and one year we even had like the the whole company was like creative innovation year, and we had like a, right. a fun room in the in the office with like beanbag chairs and all that stuff that nobody used. Yeah, well, because sadly we, we were busy being creative at our desk. Um, but it is one of those things that everyone thinks they want anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody likes the idea of being more creative, and everyone sees the fruits of it. Uh, with if you really cherry pick your examples. Well, that's the problem. Everybody loves the after effects of creativity versus the oddball ideas, the things that people put out there, or even the, the sort of projects that people are, are working on that seem, you know, too strange or uncomfortable in order to be accepted. Yeah. Now we can, we can name numerous uh, individuals who are great examples of, oh, they were, they were ahead of their time. They mm-hmm. were free thinkers and look how it paid off. Uh, the two that you were mentioning were uh, who Van Gogh and Steve, Steve Jobs. Jobs. You know, at the time, maybe a little too obsessive. Some people might have thought, "Oh, this is crazy. These ideas are coming out of left field." Um, you know, these are larger than life characters, and they don't really jive with everything else that's going on. Yeah, but uh, but of course now, and certainly after both their their deaths, they are held up as as figures. I mean, Van Gogh is a is is a is a legend of of the art world. Uh, Steve Jobs is is just cemented as an icon of, of technological innovation. He is, but then you have some people who, again, they might be the oddball out. Um, I'm thinking about Troy Hertebys. He is a Canadian scrap metal dealer and nature enthusiast who, after being attacked by a bear, became obsessed with constructing a series of increasingly elaborate bear-proof suits designed to withstand any onslaught. Now, Essentially he, power armor, like just crazy yes. sci-fi power armor in order for him to do battle with bears or hold his own in the company of bears. And he said, you know, he thinks that there there are applications beyond just trying to avoid being mauled by a grizzly, that he thinks that government agencies could actually use this in war warfare and whatnot. And he's been turned down again and again. One, there's the idea because he just doesn't have the credentials. And two, it's because it's like this one guy who became obsessed with a bear suit, right? Right, yeah. There's a, a documentary about him, uh, Project Grizzly. It was a 1996 uh, film uh, produced by the National Film Board of Canada. Uh, I have not actually seen it. 
I really want to. I've, mm-hmm. I've seen the, the trailers for it, and, and it looks like an amazing journey into this individual's mind. If you want to check out the stuff he's into now, you can go to his website. Uh, that's www.inventortroy. That's I-N-V-E-N-T-O-R-T-R-O-Y.com. And you can see that he is still really into crazy sci-fi-looking combat armor. Yeah, and what does this take? It takes innovation. It takes takes risks, financially his own, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but and- we end up laughing at it in the case of Troy. We end up saying, that guy's a goofball. He's out of touch. He's, he has these crazy inventive ideas, but none of them are landing anywhere. This is not the kind of person where most big corporations would say, that's the brain we want setting in on our brainstorming meetings. That's right, because, you know, 50 years from now, he might be celebrated. They might say he really, like, he had some very crazy ideas. And if you look back at Da Vinci and the fact that he made this, what was it, uh, a wooden automaton mm-hmm. that sat at his dining table, it's just one of his many thought experiments. You know that people sat at that dining table with him and were like, whew, little off his rocker. Yeah. But this is necessary, this, this kind of creativity and this idea that you can throw yourself into the void and be comfortable with that. Just to give this a little more background, uh, here's here's just a few noted individuals, celebrated geniuses who died penniless, who only after their death did really people come back and and say, that person was a genius, we should worship their example. We're talking about Nikola Tesla, Vincent Van Gogh, Edgar Allan Poe, Socrates, Oscar Wilde, Herman Melville, Stephen Foster, Johannes Gutenberg, and those are some pretty big names in uh, the, the sciences and the arts and in philosophy. But world changers, world changers. But it was it was only uh, an after effect, and certainly uh, I'm sure they, you know, any number of these individuals had numerous contemporaries who did not have that kind of impact, and certainly would uh, be given more of the Project Grizzly view. Uh, by uh, corporations or, or, or even uh, people within their own field. The reason for this is that we tend to, as humans, gravitate toward the middle terrain. And we'll talk more about that. But creativity's big problem and why there's a war on it is that it contains a risk factor. This is really underlying the problem of why a lot of people can't get behind it or commit to it. Yeah, creative types are risk takers. They, uh, they they tend to buck accepted and proven trends. They try new things, and they often ignore warnings uh, f- from the more cautious among us, even after repeated failures. Uh, they, uh, so, you know, it's like the grizzly man. People have been sa- telling him for ages, hey, let's stop making, maybe you should stop making armor. Maybe this isn't working out. Maybe mm-hmm. you should try something a little more proven. He's not going to do it. This is his thing. This is his dream. And he's following that, and he's going to follow that into the grave, be it, at the hands of a grizzly bear or a grizzly bear in armor. So, so there's, a, there's a riskiness in, uh, in hitching a ride on these particular stars, right? Uh, because if you give someone a choice between a large uncertain reward and a certain smaller reward, they're always going to go with something that's more of a sure thing. Yeah, unless, unless the situation is dire. Then they're right. going to roll the dice. Uh, but Barry M. Staw, he actually wrote in, uh, he wrote a great essay in the book called Creative Action in Organizations, Ivory Tower Visions and Real World Voices. He wrote that no one really wants creativity, especially corporations, because just what you described, we're talking about someone who is deviating from the norm. They're vulnerable. They're obsessive. They're sharing information. They're bucking the system. And he says the average person may become intrigued when the glorious, successful creativity are hailed by the media. But when presented with the bald truth that most scientists never come up with any earth-shaking findings, most new businesses end in failure, and most whistleblowers get demoted or fired, it's not surprising that most people usually opt for a safer 
more normal life than that followed by the creative. And if you think about it, you know, you hear the corporations say, we want creativity, we want innovation. Well, that doesn't really fit in the model of a lot of corporations because uncertainty is at the, the basis here of creativity. And that's kind of a dirty word, you know, in yeah. corporations. You want to, you want to have every nook and cranny of a corporation sanitized of uncertainty because that is when the presence of it could usher in unforeseen costs and turn up revelations that might not square with that corporation's culture. Yeah, we've, we've talked before about, uh, about movies and about uh, trying new things in Hollywood. And it's, you know, the old adage that Hollywood would rather roll out the same thing every year than try something new. Mm-hmm. And, but, but then you have to remind yourself that, that the production of any big budget film, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a corporation. That's a, that's an event that involves lots of money, lots of people's jobs. Uh, some dude's yacht may even be on the, on the line. And, all companies of that size, it's essentially the same with an oil company. Where is an oil company going to drill? Are they going to drill where they know the oil is, or are they going to drill where there might be oil? And again, we, it's just like with the, the, the noted individuals, the creative outliers that we, we look back to and we go, oh, that person was a genius. That was a genius. Uh, uh, that guy was ahead of his time. That woman was ahead of her time. It's, it's similar with movies. You look at some of the films that went on to be uh, cult classics, that went on to be highly influential on other um, filmmakers, and they were flops at the time. Uh, Big Lebowski, Big mm-hmm. Trouble in Little China, two of my favorite films, Clue, Office Space, Fight Club, Citizen Kane. Those are all films that when they came out, uh, people really didn't know what to make of them. They didn't make that big of an effect, and they certainly didn't make enough money to justify their their existence. It's only afterwards that people gravitated towards them, and they made money, and they made a name for themselves. Yeah, that's because they were outside of the realm of what, you know, the usual sort of Hollywood product stamped out mm-hmm. uh, was a part of, right? It was outside of that structure. And so what that structure is certainty, right? And again, we're talking about uncertainty and risk as being the enemy of creativity. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing because you think about it this way. Our, our amygdalas, the part of the brain that processes fear, they are ramped up in situations of uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? This is sort of hardwired in us to say, oh, we're not really sure. We're risk adverse. We all want to survive. Now, this seems a little silly on a Hollywood platform where they're just producing movies, but still, those people are tied to money, and money is seen as survival in our society, right? So Jack Nitsche, a UW-Madison professor of psychiatry, found that uncertainty intensifies a person's perception of a bad experience, at least in the case of disturbing photos. Um, Nitsche showed participants and found that the emotional centers in the brain responded much more strongly to the material if the person didn't know what was coming. So again, we're talking about disturbing photos. This is an extreme scenario, but I think that it makes the case that in some ways we are overreacting to uncertainty because we're hardwired to do that. Yeah, because ultimately if you take things down to a primal, you know, life amid the saber-toothed tiger's example, you want certainty in your life as much as you can possibly hoard, as much as you can possibly grab onto. You want the the certainty of food, and you want to uh, avoid the uncertainty of of, of uh, starvation or uh, death at the hands of some uh, uh, apex predator out there. And even uh, you know, even in some of the small choices in life, as much as we we try to think that we're creative, and we think, oh, uh, you know, I love a, a highly creative work. I love the uncertainty of a of a really good book or a really good movie. How uns- how much uncertainty are we really comfortable with? Like, if I were to hand you a book right now and say, you should read this, I'm not going to tell you what it's called or what it's about, but devote you know x num x hours of mm-hmm. your life to reading it and just see what happens. 
you would be hesitant to, to take that challenge, I would imagine. And, and so would I. I wouldn't know about the risk and reward ratio. I would yeah. say to myself, not really certain here what the outcome is going to be. Therefore, I will default to the norm, which is to push it aside. Yeah. I mean, one of the big things we turn to the Internet for so much is to, to vet stuff that's coming to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if it is a, a, a new film that might be dealing with a new idea, we want to know who's behind it, who wrote it, who's directing it, who starred in it, uh, what's their track record with success in the past, uh, what do noted critics think of it, what do our friends think of it. Mm-hmm. So we, in, in a way, we, we still want to remove as much uncertainty from our consumption of creative products as possible. You know, I was just thinking about the normalcy bias, the episode that we did about how people will underreact in a traumatic situation because they want there to be that certainty that that the reality that they know, because at the end of the day, the sort of patterned reality that we encounter over and over again, this idea of normalcy takes a uh, less of a cognitive load on us than novel thoughts and uncertainty. So from a survival perspective, you want to go with the thing that's sort of known, albeit a little bit rote and possibly boring. Huh. You know, one of the tragedies is that some of the most memorable experiences of our lives, assuming they're not negative and kill us or, or injure us or traumatize us, are often situations that involve a lot of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. We end up going on this adventure, right? And the rare opportunities that we do read something or view a, a film or consume some piece of, of media without any preconceived notions, with, with next to zero um, uh, in terms of anticipation, like some of those can be the most rewarding experiences because you're right. just flying completely blind into the unknown. But if given the choice, it's our, our natural evolved instinct to avoid those kinds of encounters. That's why every once in a while you should submit to the crazy makers in your life. You know, the people who try to push you into new experiences. Yeah, come out to this club. Come see this play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. just do it because you could get the reward there. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this bias against creativity and uh, some studies that confirm that it exists. All right, we're back. We're talking about creativity and how no matter how much we cling to it personally, no matter how much uh, corporations and employers will, will celebrate creativity in the workplace or make a show of it, ultimately, we're all a little suspicious of the topic to begin with. Yes, there is a paper called The Bias Against Creativity, Why People Desire But Reject Creative Ideas. And these, this paper is by researchers from Cornell University of Pennsylvania and the University of North Carolina And they say, essentially, creative ideas make people uncomfortable. Now, this paper is based on two studies from the University of Pennsylvania, which involves more than 200 participants. Yeah, in two experiments, they uh, manipulated uncertainty during different models, and the results of both experiments demonstrated the existence of negative bias against creativity uh, when participants experienced uncertainty. And furthermore, they found that the bias against uh, creativity interfered with participants' ability to recognize a creative idea to begin with. So the the results reveal a concealed barrier that uh, creative actors may face, they say, as as they attempt to gain acceptance for their incredible, crazy, awesome ideas. Right, because what you're talking about is the demand for more of that cognitive load Mm -hmm. on the brain, and then you have the uncertainty factor. And then this is so interesting to me that it could actually interfere with the person's ability to perceive that as a creative idea. Yeah. As a, almost as if, you know, I can't see, I, I've got, you know, hysterical blindness to this idea because I'm so overloaded. 
Yeah, and, and I and again coming back to to films and, and fiction, you so often see like a highly creative film that is following an accepted plot path, you know? Mm-hmm. Like like none of the, the the plot points or the character notes are really going to be that surprising, but it's the the wrapping that they're in. So even something that is on the surface highly creative and and highly original is is structured in a way that it's very accessible and very uh uh non-frightening. Now, in a nutshell, the paper is saying, okay, the corporations need to take note of this. Mm-hmm. And if they truly want innovation and creativity in the workplace, then they need to create a more supportive framework for creativity rather than just saying, hey, I want a bunch of creative ideas. Because, again, if you think about how a corporation is set up, um, it tends to default to these these sort of norms in language. You hear corporate speak all the time and the way that people dress, right? Um, bucking the system and and being, you know, sort of going off on your own is frowned upon. Now, unless you're looking at a business like Google, which, you know, they there's a whole mandate for just go off and do something that you're interested in because the idea is that later on they can take that person's novel thinking or, or crazy making in the workplace and get something out of it later, even if it doesn't fit into what's actually going on at that very moment. Yeah, but for most of us, there's at, le- there's at least some sort of a, if there's not an actual dress code in place, then there's a, an implied dress code. There, you know, unless it's, you know, Freaky Friday or Halloween or, or whatever kind of uh, uh, day you might have. Yeah, it's that you have to wear a pants rule in our office. Yeah, which, to- <laughs> which totally messes with my creative vibe. Okay, so we recently moved to a new location. And we are sharing a space with one part of the business that is involved with sales, and then the other part of the business is editorial, us, right? Right. And we have two different sides of this office space. Did you know I recently found out that the sales department calls us the dark side? Well, that's interesting because it, it reminds me very much of, uh, remember that episode we did about uh, tidally locked worlds? Yes. And I mentioned an old uh, sci-fi novel about uh, a world where Half the world is in darkness, half the world is in light. And on the light side, they're ruled by science. And the dark side, they're ruled by magic. So maybe we're like that. They're the science, we're the magic. Well, I think initially they called us that because uh, we are all apparently sensitive to light. And, and so we don't have any overhead lighting on our side. But, you know. We have this weird aversion to harsh artificial light. Yeah. But we also dress maybe a little nutty because we don't have to go out on sales calls. Mm-hmm. I will venture to say that the break room talk is bizarre just because of the amount of topics we're covering. So I kind of, I sort of love that they have decided to call us the dark side. I'll accept it. I'll embrace that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That was a bit of a diversion. Let's get back to this idea of creativity in, particularly among children, because we've talked about this before. Children are great at dealing with uncertainty and making all sorts of new associations between things. Yeah. And they are often a great place to go for your creative thought. I mean, they'll come up with just crazy ideas. Like I've mentioned, I mentioned before going to uh, Uncle Grandpa's, the, uh, the, the children's puppet show, uh, that they, they do here in Atlanta where they let the, the children shout out ideas mm-hmm. for the improv, um, puppeteers to then use. And, uh, at one point, a uh, puppeteer said, Hey, all right, we need a name for the princess. What will the princess's name be? And one little girl, uh, shouted out Batman the girl, which is, which was just hilarious at, at the time. And, 
and just not the kind of idea you would expect uh, an adult to come up with. Or likewise, there's, uh, I think it's called Axe Cop. Uh, there's like a whole like web uh, uh, series turned cartoon series where the ideas originated with this little girl. And then her, her father took the ideas and they were, you know, it was like goofy stuff. Like here's a cop and he's on the beat, but for some reason he runs around with an axe instead of uh, a gun. <laughs> So on the surface of things, you would think, all right, well, children are just a font of creativity. They're just these, you know, just wonderful, crazy, abstract thoughts, just, just, just bubbling out of the ground. But uh, a, a 2010 study uh, gives us a, a little more information to go on and shows that creativity, at least in American children, is actually down in recent years. Yeah, we're going to roll out some of these stats here. Sorry about giving you the sads, but we're talking about 300,000 creativity tests going back to the 1970s. Kyung Hee Kim, a creative a creativity researcher at the College of William & Mary, found creativity has decreased among American children. And since 1990, children have become less able to produce unique and unusual ideas. They're also less humorous, less imaginative, and less able to elaborate on ideas, according to Kim. And the researchers point to a tightly bound education environment like those such as No Child Left Behind, an act of Congress passed in 2001 that requires schools to administer annual standardized tests as a way to assess whether they are meeting state education standards. Now, this inadvertently hamstrings what and how educators teach and in these scenarios, typically teachers don't get to learn, to spend a lot of time exploring uh, unexpected ideas. So kids, as a result, they, they begin to fall in line with the material that they're teaching in a very stringent way and anticipating what the teacher wants to hear as opposed to really taking that idea and chewing it around in their mind and um, and exercising their critical thinking abilities. Yeah, you, they end up teaching the test. They end up teaching the expected rather than celebrated the unexpected and the unknown. Uh, and and as we've touched bef- on before with creativity, this isn't just a situation of oh, well, they're going to produce less English majors and failed musicians. No, creativity is a is is an essential part of not only artistic endeavor but scientific endeavor. Uh, it's it's something that empowers just about uh, any field. Um, one of these children may go into or dream of going into when they uh, reach adulthood. It's one of the cornerstone indicators that predicts future success for a child. Mm -hmm. So you look at this data and you'll say, okay, well, SAT scores are rising in, in these couple of decades, but those scores on divergent thinking are tanking. And that divergent thinking is what makes or breaks the ability of a child to really think about a topic, not just with creativity, but but bring a sort of full 360 understanding to it. Yeah. Saber-toothed tiger in the bushes, not a standardized test. Uh, <laughs> the sciences, the arts, not standardized tests. So, it, it, I mean, it makes sense. It's sad, but it makes sense. And uh, again, that uh, 2010 study is not just a study, but a study of studies of 300,000 right. different creativity tests uh, going back to the 70s. So, again, she was pulling from a vast well of data. Now, it gets even worse. It, it turns out that kids, creative students, may be discriminated against in the classroom. There's a paper called Creativity, Asset or Burden in the Classroom. And there are two studies that were conducted to examine teachers' perceptions of creative students. Study one was based on earlier works that identified personality characteristics associated with creativity. So that 
created the baseline. The prototypicality of these characteristics as they applied to creative children was rated by college students. Elementary school teachers were then asked to rate their favorite and least favorite students based on these characteristics. So what happened is that the teacher actually ended up favoring kids who were pleasers or satisfiers and more readily followed directions and did what they were told. Which kind of makes sense when we talk about this environment in which you have very stringent requirements. Yeah, and just, I mean, also just the reality of being a teacher. I mean, I, I don't have a big background as a teacher. I only taught for a very short period of time, high school, English. I was not, I was not really all that trained. I was just kind of a warm body they could put in when a teacher uh, left. But, uh, but even, you know, with that brief experience, I could see, you know, you want, you don't want the kids that are behavior problem. You want the, the kids that are going to, do what you you say and, and and obey the rules and perform well, and as much as you might hate to admit it, you don't want kids that are going to clog up the uh, the gear work of the of the classroom with uh, with too many questions. I guess. Yeah, but it's so sad because it's you know those are the times when the child is really trying to grasp the topic. Yeah. By going outside of of, of what you would normally perceive as the okay, here's the answer. Um, because you, everybody knows that in, in a situation outside of the classroom, too, you could be in an office situation. Someone asks, invariably will ask that question that kind of makes everybody have a headache. But the reason is because they are truly thinking about it and trying to wrap their brains a- around it. So there should be that space for students. But in- instead, if a student knows that they are being discriminated against, they might avoid creative thoughts to better fit in and not feel socially ostracized. And I was thinking about uh, this this idea of students in classrooms who are sometimes given empty praise. It's called the praise paradox. And there's this idea that if you give a kid empty praise, they perceive it as that they're not doing well. And so even that, just these like little nuanced things that teacher these interactions between teachers and students really make or break how that that student is going to respond intellectually. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, looking back on, on elementary school for myself, I mean, the, the classes that I was most into were the ones where we discussed stuff, where we, there was like an open forum, at least at the end of class, where you could just ask questions in order, or discuss the, uh, uh, the, the, the history you were, you were talking about or the story you were reading. Uh, it certainly wasn't math class, but, uh, but uh, yeah, science classes, uh, social studies, uh, literature. Uh, I can remember specific classes where, there was that uh, situation where you felt like those who were hungry for knowledge were going to be fit. Right. And, you know, obviously I'm not in it right now. You, you're you not in it right now, so we don't know the absolute environment. We can only talk in generalities that are painted in some of these studies. Mm-hmm. But here's the bright side of being an oddball and, and asking those questions and creating at least, I guess you could call it an intellectual problem. Um, if you fly your freak flag, it could be a good thing. There's a 2012 study by Johns Hopkins University business professor Sharon Kim, and she found that social rejection can inspire imaginative thinking, particularly in individuals with a strong sense of their own independence. I can I can definitely relate to that. I mean, having had virtually no friends throughout junior high, uh, like that was a time of a, a lot of creative uh, uh, development for me, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, the paper is basically saying that this rejection effect can liberate creative people from the need to fit in, and then, then they can go and pursue their interests. Like, I remember specifically thinking, it's like, all right, it kind of sucks when I'm uh, at, at school and my whole social environment, you know, my, you know, my family's great, 
Uh, I don't have any friends at school, so I'm just going to read as many like Stephen King and J.R.R. Tolkien books as possible. And and I just retreated into those, or just retreated into uh, into fiction and into you know creative thought. Yeah, I know. There's a there's a sort of uh, aha moment where it's like, ah, oh, I'm never going to be able to please these people. Yeah. Therefore, I'm going to go be my freaky self, and it's going to be fun because this weekend I am going to self hypnotize, folks. <laughs> well, I mean, the, I guess one of the tragedies too, though, is that we were talking. We talked about the teenage brain, and I th- feel like we're. I often will, will think back on my, my my days in high school and junior high, and I think if I had to relive that all again, if some sort of weird sci-fi scenario happened, and I found myself with my current mind in my junior high uh, existence, like what would I do differently? And it's really a, a false uh, situation to try to imagine because our hormones are pumping out a totally different cocktail at that point, and our brains are hardwired to want these people to like us. Uh, so there's there's a big hurdle there in being the uh, you know the the just forget all you people uh freak flag flying creative individual yeah and you have uh, the other problem that underscores it all is that that social rejection the pain of it mm-hmm. and, and we talked about this in the teenage brain that feels like actual pain yeah it is so ramped up in the amygdala at that age that you can't ignore it. It's like a siren going off. Yeah. So it takes a very strong constitution to get past that point to say it's okay that I'm working outside of the norm, and you know this it's liberating, and I can now go and do the thing that makes me happiest and, and that I'm really passionate about. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, just a little more insight into creativity itself, and especially into the war on creativity, if you will. The stone-cold fact that as awesome as creativity is, as important as creativity is in all these various uh, fields, from the arts to the sciences, we have a, a built-in aversion to it. And uh, and it makes a lot of sense from just an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah, and some of you may be relieved to find this information out if you've ever been throwing out some ideas and you feel like people aren't listening to them. Just know that, you know, it may be that their their thought processes are so clouded by the cognitive load of it that they truly cannot understand what you're talking about or see it uh, because it does. There's this element of uncertainty. So there's there's a worth in understanding that perspective and maybe being able to repackage it. Yeah. All right. If you want to check out all the creative stuff that we're up to, uh, various episodes, all the podcast episodes, all the blog posts, all the videos, uh, you can find them at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's our mothership, our homepage uh, that is constantly updated with all sorts of cool content. And uh, you also find links there to our various social media outlets, uh, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, uh, SoundCloud, you name it. Find us on the one that you use, and then you can follow us. Indeed. And if you would like to send us an email, you can do so at blowthemind at discovery. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.